Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Derek Mwiti. Based in Nairobi, Derek is a data scientist, mentor, and trainer with particular expertise in areas such as data visualization and machine learning. He is also an avid writer who contributes to a number of data science publications, including, including Data Camp Towards Data Science, KD Nuggets, and Heartbeat by the Boston-based startup Fritz. Derek is the author of the LeanPub book, Introductory Tutorials for Machine Learning, Kickstart Your Career in Machine Learning. In the book, Derek provides tutorials with practical examples for software developers on the, on the important topic of how machine learning is actually changing the way we write software and other things that we do. In this interview, we're going to talk about Derek's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you, Derek, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Lean, for having me. I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computer science and technology generally. So Lynn, I grew up in Eastern Province in Kenya. And so after finishing high school, I became a peer teacher in one of the local high schools where I taught mathematics. Uh, that's where the interest to pursue a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and Computer Science uh, came up. So after that, I joined university. And upon joining university, I joined some of the local tech communities, such as the High Hub in Nairobi. And that's how I got immersed into the technology scene. Uh, I can see on LinkedIn that you participated in a program called the Lapid Leaders Experience. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience and the purpose of the program? Uh, so Lapid Leaders Africa is an organization that is based in Nairobi that exists to unlock the potential of young people in Africa. So the purpose of this organization is to help, to help young people to build their self-awareness, uh, sharpen their employability skills and uh, entrepreneurship skills, and also develop exceptional leaders in the, that Africa needs. So after the completing the program, I volunteered to lead the recruiting in the organization, an experience that helped me to work on my leadership skills as well as improve my level of self-awareness. And I've, I've got a question. How did you go about recruiting people? Uh, so when I was in charge of recruiting, I was still in campus. So we came up with some of the strategies uh, such as uh, doing events in campuses. We also came up with something we used to call Lapid Sunday, where we'd meet uh, young people in after, after service in their churches. Uh, also, we also introduced something we used to call Lapid Coffee, where I would go to uh, various campuses, and during break time, I buy for the students coffee as we talk about leadership in the continent. That's a really good idea, buying coffee for students. Um, uh, and yeah. you, are, you are also part of the Entrepreneur in Training Program at the Meltwater Entrepreneurial Schools of Technology. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that Entrepreneur in Training Program? Uh, so MEST uh, offers a graduate-level training for, uh, student, for graduates in Africa, so those who have already completed university. It takes uh, around 60 people across the continent, so it's a quite... Uh, quite difficult program to get into and through the one-year scholarship you learn about the business communication and software development and after the program you pitch and they if they like your idea they'll put money into it one of the fun things about this podcast is that i get to interview authors from all over the world and one thing i always like to ask about is what the startup scene is like where they're from. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the startup scene is like in Nairobi and is the tech sector a priority for the government there like it is in some other countries? That's a very interesting question, Lin. So the tech sector uh, is a very big priority for the government in Kenya. Uh, the technology cabinet, cabinet secretary, uh, Joe Mosheru, uh, who was previously the head of Google in Kenya, 
uh, formed an AI and blockchain task force that has come up with strategies on how the government can implement blockchain and, it, uh, and artificial intelligence uh, in government operations. Uh, there are also various funds that support local uh, startups. And Nairobi is also a very good uh, place for startups because we have over 27 tech hubs uh, taking a third position from Egypt and South Africa. Uh, the startup scene is also very mature because of the high levels of internet and mobile penetration. And like other nations, it's very easy to set up a uh, business in Kenya. You can establish a business by just going online and registering it. However, the market is very competitive and uh, it's not very forgiving like other places on the continent. Uh, in Nairobi, consumers expect you to give them the very to give you ve to give them ready products. The best product wins. It's a winner-takes-all market. Uh, I wasn't planning on asking you this question, but in preparing for this interview, I little, just did a little bit of, you know, checking out the, the news from Kenya, and I read about the deployment of a nationwide digital identification program. Uh, is, is that related to the government's efforts in blockchain and things like that, if I read it, the story correctly, and I'm, I'm right about that? Uh, so, so it's called the Uduma Number. Uh, so it's a program by the government to uh, register all the people in the republic and also to get their fingerprints, um, take all their biometric information. So it's going to help the government uh, in giving better services to the citizens of the Republic. Okay, okay, thank you very much. I believe something similar has been uh, done on a massive scale in India in the last, uh -huh. in the last few years as well. That's, that was really interesting to hear. One, one question I usually like to ask people who've studied computer science is if, if you were starting out a career in tech now, would you still go to university? And in your case, you graduated with a degree in math and computer science just a couple of years ago. So I think you're probably the most recent computer science graduate I've talked to about this. But I wanted to ask you, so I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. Do you think it's necessary to study at the university level to start a career specifically in machine learning? A lot of people argue it's not required to start a career as a software developer generally to get a like a computer science degree. So while I agree with some of these sentiments, I must say that a degree is very important. Uh, so having specialized in statistics, I must say that some of the concepts that we learn to are very complex and require teaching by experienced professors. Uh, that said, it's still possible to pick up some of these concepts from the learning resources that are available online. Uh, the challenge we are having is that the education system in most parts of the world is not adapting as fast as uh, the technology is changing. So yes, it's very possible to become a software developer without a degree. In fact, very many software developers are self-taught. Uh, some have switched from their first degree to learn software development on their own. Due to these, possibili due to these possibilities, uh, the first degree does not seem to, does not seem to be a prerequisite uh, for, a for a career in machine learning or software de development in general. And uh, not everybody who gets into technology also gets into blogging and writing. How did you get into blogging and writing yourself? Uh, so when I started learning, I started sharing what I learned on uh, towards data science. Uh, in fact, in the very beginning, they rejected some, they rejected some of my articles. <laughs> Uh, but after some time, I got a hang of it. After doing this for a while, I was contacted by Austin Condra, who is the community manager at Freeze. I asked me to write uh, for their blog, and, that, and the rest is history. And uh, I've got a, this is a writer's question, but um, how did you how did you take the rejections when they when you first started getting them? Every every writer has stories about about how they deal with that. Uh, so 
the, the good thing is that they give you actionable feedback uh, so you can actually be able to go back and look at uh, what what the, where the problem was and rectify on that and then you write again get some more feedback until someone accepts you wrote in a recent blog post about the ways that AI may have an impact on the future of education. Uh, can you, I mean, we've already sort of touched on this a little bit, but can you share some of your thoughts on that topic specifically about how AI will impact education? So I think that artificial intelligence will have a very big role to play in improving education in the future. Some nations are already using artificial intelligence in their education. Uh, so, for example, as the teacher-student ratio decreases, AI tutors will play a very big role in helping teachers in delivering content. AI will also automate some things such as grading and predicting the best, best career for students. Uh, we've also seen things uh, such as smart schools with visual recognition technology. Uh, for example, the, the classrooms are able to monitor class attend attendance and even cap cheating. So ultimately, I think uh, that uh, AI will make learning easier and probably more fun. Uh, there was an article just today that I came across in Wired by the philosopher Daniel Dennett about um, some of the dangers that AI poses for us potentially in the future and how one of the ways we, we might end up relating to AI is that it will tell us, it will give us solutions that we can test and we proved or proven to work but that we just can't understand you know where the answer came from and that we might relate to ai as oracles in that in that sense or do you have any concerns about how ai might impact perhaps our knowledge and learning or just humanity generally i think the biggest concern that has been uh, around is uh, the question of will AI, will ai replace uh, for example workers uh, teachers uh, but I think uh, what is ultimately going to happen is that artificial intelligence will make work easier for all these workers, for the teachers. So by uh, blending uh, these two, like how we work and artificial intelligence, we will make work easier for ourselves. It's, um, it's not maybe the most, um, the safest thing for me to say, but one of the things is that often, and I've had some experience with this myself, you know, not everybody has exposure to the best teachers. And um, I would have loved to have had a lot of the tools around when I was younger and going to school that are available to people today. Do you think that AI will help people learn on their own as well? I think what AI will do is that it'll, it'll enable the on-demand learning. So for example, with the, with the AI tutors, you don't really need to have uh, for example, teachers in class for you to learn. So you can just uh, learn at your own time by using these AI tutors. And presumably it will help with uh, something that's becoming, I think, a growing concern for people in the education space, which is, you know, just lifelong learning, that things, the pace yes. of change is so fast that people are going to have to be, le learning is going to be something that you don't sort of conceive of, en of ending when you join the workforce. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so moving on to the next part of the interview, uh, for those who might not know, I'm sure everyone's heard the term machine learning, but not everyone knows what it is. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, about what it is? So uh, in, in very simple terms, uh, we can say that machine learning is a technology that enables computers to learn from data and discover patterns and so in such a manner automate uh, complex, complex uh, tasks. So, for example, we all know of how Google applies this uh, in, for example, in spam detection, 
where if people are sending you spam messages, uh, the Google uh, machine learning algorithms can be able to learn over time how spam messages look like and just send them directly to your spam folder. And I, and and it's used for, um, I think actually Google also uses machine learning for its CAPTCHA system that checks oh, yeah, to see if you're security. a human or not. Yeah. For security reasons too. Yeah. Yeah. Just this, this is a bit random, but just to get a bit of the flavor of the, the depth of, of the things that you write about in machine learning generally, I found an interesting post you wrote on self-organizing maps. Could you talk a little bit about what SOMs are and what competitive learning is? So that's a very interesting question. So self-organizing maps are a class of unsupervised learning neural networks that are used in feature detection. So they're mainly used in data compression. And so in supervised learning, we use a gradient descent and back propagation in the training process. However, in unsupervised and in unsupervised learning, the data is not labeled. So the pro, so the learning process occurs in what is known as competitive learning. So in the process, the neural networks, uh, the neural nodes uh, compete for the right to respond. And so due to, this due to this competition, the neurons are forced to organize themselves, uh, therefore forming a self-organizing map. Uh, so the network is therefore able to distinguish various features based on these similarities. And how can this be used to fight fraud? Uh, so, uh, so what happens is that uh, these self-organizing maps can organize features that look similar together. So, for example, it can be able to organize, uh, for example, if it's, uh, it's insurance claims, can be able to organize insurance claims that look fraudulent together. So you can be able to see that uh, the insurance claims in this uh, cluster are fraudulent claims. That's really fascinating. I've, uh, I've had to do a little bit of anti-fraud work myself. Just, you know, when you, when you work for a startup, you wear many different <laughs> hats. Um, and, yeah. and, yeah, looking, looking for those... Um, uh, patterns is is always the way you 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 solve the problem going forward when it starts when it starts hitting you. Yeah, yeah. And so one thing I confess to having been ignorant of, but it seemed suddenly obvious when I read a post that you wrote about it. Uh, machine learning models do not work directly with text; um, they work with numerical data. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how machine learning can handle tasks involving the analysis of words. I know it's a, I know it's a big question, but but you have written about it. <laughs> so uh, when when working with text data, you have to find a way to convert the text data into numbers. Uh, so there are various techniques out there for doing so. So one such technique is uh, creating a bag of words model. So let's assume let's assume that we are working on uh, movie reviews data. Uh, say we want to see whether a movie review was, let's say, positive or negative. So we'd create a bag of words uh, by taking all the words in the reviews and creating a column for each word. We would then check uh, each review, and if the word is found in that specific review, it would be represented by a 1, and if the word does not exist, it would be represented by a 0. So in the process, we might find that there are words that occur very many times, uh, but don't help us in solving the task at hand. So we solve this uh, problem by dividing the number of times a word appears uh, in the reviews by the total number of words in all the reviews uh, to obtain what we call uh, term frequencies. Since a word that appears more will have uh, higher frequencies, we reduce its weight uh, by a technique called term frequency inverse uh, document. So obviously there are other complex uh, techniques for solving text-based problems, but uh, this is just one of them. 
Yeah, it's just it's just such a fascinating area, and with um, you know automated translation services, this is something I've been watching with fascination, uh, like like so many other people have in the last few years. Just how good these things are getting, and, and that they're just going to get better over time. Just makes me it's really it's really interesting to think about where this kind of technology will be in twenty years, uh, and the types of analysis that people will be able to do on our use of language. Obviously, it's going to get better because of the availability of a much more training data. Uh, on that note, actually, that leads me to my next question. Um, what is the relationship between data science and machine learning? So that's also a very interesting one. So before you dive in into developing machine learning models, we first have to explore the data and to understand it. Also, we need to understand that the problem at hand in, in depth. So the data science process is important because it ensures that uh, we pass the right data to the machine learning models. Uh, so for example, we have to first clean the data, uh, deal with null values, and extract new features that would help us, would help our machine learning models perform better. So as you all know, if you pass in garbage data, you get uh, garbage results. Garbage in, garbage out. Sure. And uh, so one of the one of the themes of this podcast is that you know uh, as Mark Andreessen said years ago, software is eating the world. I mean everything everything we do has software behind it, one way or another. It seems, and so how software is written and conceived and deployed and maintained is actually something that's you know as basic as the questions we ask about our, our physical architecture and our sewerage and things like that. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, moving onto the subject of your book. Specifically, how has how has machine learning already changed how people write software? So machine learning has actually already make, made work easier for developers. So, for example, according to Jeff Dean, uh, 500 lines of uh, TensorFlow code has already replaced uh, 500,000 lines of code in Google Translate. Ma machine learning is also helping uh, in getting uh, faster responses for problems such as uh, running out of memory. So, for example, if your server is having any issues, uh, there are machine learning models that can be able to detect these problems, and you can so you can be able to deal with them uh, faster. And uh, how do you think machine learning will change how software is written in, say, you know, the next next ten years? If you have any thoughts about, <laughs> about the future. So that's a very interesting one that has actually been trending. Uh, is the ability of machine learning to write software? So it would be very interesting to see how this plays out in the next couple of years. So the big question has been, will software be able to write itself? And so I think this, this will be inevitable. This is something that we can look forward to happening in, in the near future. And uh, if software is writing itself, I mean, presumably there will still be people um, involved along the way. Are programmers going to have to become more sophisticated in their understanding of, of things like machine learning? Or will it become just kind of like a kind of a version of Stack Overflow where, you know, now we're just kind of cutting and pasting from answers provided to us by other sources? So I think uh, that uh, software developers will now uh, focus much more on learning uh, machine learning, how to tune the parameters, how to get the right training data, and to clean it such that when the training happens, they get the very best results. And what was the inspiration for you to write this book? So actually, uh, I've been, I've, I have had these uh, tutorials for a very long time, uh, but then I was given the idea to put them into 
a PDF by Austin Condra, who is one of my editors. So the idea to uh, put together a book was never mine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in researching for this interview, I saw that you, you previously had a book published on PACT. Is that by, by PACT? Is that correct? So that's something that is still in process. I think the book will be released in May. Okay. okay. Yeah, so, so we are still writing the book. Well, congratulations on that project. Um, we're, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. Um, uh, and so for this book, you chose to, to publish it on LeanPub. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose us as your publishing platform for this project. Uh, so when, when the book was ready, I consulted one of our teaching fellows at the Meltwater Entrepreneur School of Technology. His name is Andrew Bakowitz. So he's the one who sent me the link uh, to LeanPub. And uh, after... Once I had the link, everything was straightforward. And so, so the reason I chose LeanPub is mostly because it was very easy to, it was very easy for me to just upload my PDF, EPUB, and MOBI files. And that's it. There was no much uh, complications involved. Yeah, that was, that was my next question, actually. So you used our Bring Your Own Book feature, which lets you upload PDF, EPUB, and MOBI files that you make yourself and put them up for sale on our bookstore. Uh, and I wanted mm -hmm. to know, um, I mean, all, I'm, all the people listening who were thinking of being writers or who are writers themselves would probably like to know what tools you use to create your, your book. Uh, so I prepared the book on Google Docs, and I downloaded the PDF and EPUB versions from there. Uh, but then I had to look for some tools online to convert it to a MOBI file. And often, LeanPub authors are interested in engaging directly with people who've bought their book. Is that something that's important to you? Do you are you getting feedback from people that is, is improving your book? So that's a very important thing, uh, but I haven't uh, really uh, spoken to any of the readers. But I think it's important to in order to get valuable feedback that I would use in writing, for example, my next book. So I don't know how this would work, but probably a forum for each book or other would help. And um, uh, the last question I always like to ask people on this podcast is um, if there was one feature we could build for you or one problem we have that you noticed that you could ask us to fix, uh, what would you ask us to do? Uh, code formatting. Uh, so I need a beautiful way to format code that takes into consideration rules of various languages such, such as indentation in Python. So for example, when someone is reading your book, you want them to be able to copy and paste the code and it works. So if there's a way you paste the code and it's properly formatted, that would be a nice one. We, we do use uh, pigments. Um, so if you write a book in LeanPub, you can actually set, for, for every block of code, you can set the language. Um, sure. And, and it does the syntax highlighting. And in most cases, it should be you should be able to copy and paste it and and use it. But I won't. I won't. I'm not a programmer myself, so I won't claim it's beautiful. <laughs> so I think the reason I haven't uh, seen that is because I used the bring your book uh, feature. Maybe now the next one I should write it online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're very welcome. Please, please do. And then any feedback you have, if you if you look at it and you think that's ugly, well, we would we would love <laughs> we would love to hear hear from you. Um, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Derek, very much for taking the time out of what I assume is a beautiful morning. It's, it's evening time here um, uh, for doing this, this interview. I really appreciate it and learned a lot. Uh, and thank you very much for being a LeanPub author. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much. 
And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like and review in iTunes. And if you'd like to try being a LeanPub author yourself, please go to leanpub.com and click on Why LeanPub. Thanks.